and I want to get through that and chapter 12 today, but chapter 12 is only about seven verses long, six, so we should be able to do that without, without difficulty. Uh, chapter 13 begins an entirely new section of the book. Chapters 13 to 23 are the oracles against the foreign nations. Um, they're a very important passage, although I suspect most of the time when we read this, they're kind of obscure. They're hard to understand. Um, about the only reason we go to chapters 14 to 23 or, uh, or 13 to 23 uh, would be to see the fall of Satan in chapter 14, which isn't the fall of Satan. Yeah. Are you with me? So uh, this is an odd passage, but we'll be able to put it in a context that I think will make it useful. But what I'll do after today is until Easter, we'll go on and do a couple of other things uh, for just preparation for Easter. I got to thinking Dallas Seminary puts out a devotional every year for Christmas, and they have faculty members write short devotionals. I've got to talk to someone at the seminary about this. Why shouldn't we be doing this for Easter? Same kind of thing. And maybe start with Lent, the beginning of Lent, um, and then work through that that way. Uh, most of us don't do a lot of preparation for Easter. We, we prepare well for Christmas, but not so much for Easter. So far more important is, is uh, the season of the celebration of the resurrection than the uh, birth of Jesus. So uh, I think I, I, we'll spend a couple of weeks doing that, and I think... Uh, Easter Sunday we have is it the case that we don't have class? Yeah, yeah. okay so uh, then when we come back I'll, I'll come back to Isaiah 13 to 23 and we'll go through that pretty quickly we won't uh, try to do a chapter a week 13 weeks or whatever it is 14 weeks um, through those chapters but um, we'll, we'll move fa- fairly quickly through that material So, chapter 11, verse 10. We actually got to verse 10, but I want you to notice something about verses 10 and 11. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. And verse 11, then it will happen on that day. They are in English different, at least I'm reading the New American Standard, but in... uh, in Hebrew, they're word for word the same at the beginning. Um, it will be in that day. So there's a clear parallelism between 10 and 11. This often happens in the Old Testament. Uh, it happens in the New Testament too, but not so often. The New Testament is a much more Western book than the Old Testament is, um, if that communicates to you at all. The rhetorical devices that Paul uses that the other epistle writers use are very similar to the rhetorical devices all of Western culture has been raised on. But this is not Western. This is not Greek. It's Asian. It's Jewish. Yes? It's Hebrew. So frequently you will get to a verse or a paragraph and you'll wonder, well, does this go with what goes before? Or does it go with what comes follow? What comes afterwards? Verse ten clearly goes with what goes before. Uh, look at verse one of chapter eleven. 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Uh, Just an aside, something we didn't mention when we were here a couple of weeks ago. That word branch in the second half of the line? Yes? Is a word that you would, you would, as a Hebrew speaker, you would immediately hear the word Nazareth in it. I don't know whether that's the background that the New Testament writers have when they said, when they, when they came back from Egypt, this is Matthew, when they came back from Egypt, they went to, to Nazareth because it, it was written that he shall be called a Nazarene. Um, he, he was not a Nazarene. <coughs> he was a Baptist. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, uh, the, the point, there, there's no statement in the Bible that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. I'm not sure, and, and nobody seems to know for sure what's going on in Matthew when, when he says that, but perhaps this is the source of that. But you have a reference to the, to the stem that comes from Jacob, uh, from uh, Jesse, right? Now in verse 10, it's a different image. It's the root of Jesse. One of the commentators made a point, not only will God be, I can't stock trade, not, not, only, not only will God be faithful to Israel, God will be faithful to the son of Jesse. Are you with me here? So if the stem from Jesse, and this is calling back something we've mentioned in a, a couple of times in recent studies, in the debate that Jesus was, has with the Various groups in Israel, the Pharisees come and they challenge him, the Sadducees come. Remember this? Yeah. Jesus ends that debate <laughs> by posing a conundrum they can't solve. Whose son is Messiah? Well, he's David's son. Well, if he's David's son, how does David, who's a prophet, call him Lord? For David, speaking as a prophet, said, The Lord said to my master, so Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand. Well, this is setting the same puzzle for an ancient Israelite. The Messiah is the stem from Jesse, and we, we related that a couple of weeks ago to the end of chapter 6, that the judgment on Jerusalem, on Judah, is going to be so severe that it will be like a stump left in the ground, and that's all that's left. And then he says the holy seed is the stump. But out of that stump grows one a very small, very weak branch. Yes? Um, Exposed to all the problems that human children are exposed to over time. I I read something recently that uh, something like 50% of children in the ancient world died before age uh, two. Uh, I forget what it was, 20% die before, uh, either in birth or before birth, and 50% die by age two or three. Right. So, so a woman would have to have four children to, to statistically make sure that she would have two survive to adulthood. So everybody had had, had had the experience of the death of a baby, and, and more than one, more than likely. So if that's the case that this one is going to come 
as a stem from Jesse, a very weak branch. You know weak branches. You've seen them. You see them every day. Do you not? Yes? Having just a weak branch, just a baby that's been born, just a newborn. But there is not a large probability that that newborn is going to survive. Yes? So is that what God vests his plan in? Is that how God does his work? And the answer is, you better believe it. (laughs) Are you with me? So at the beginning of of Romans, Isaiah 11, I haven't taught Romans in a while. Do we need to go back and study Romans again? Uh, Maybe this is a word from God. Uh, uh, At the beginning of Isaiah 11, um, it's a branch from Jesse. But in verse 10, it's no longer a branch. It's the root of Jesse. How can he be both a branch and offspring of Jesse and the root from which Jesse came? You and I understand what was a problem for them they couldn't solve. Does this make sense to you? So verse 10. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Let me bring us up to date here. Uh, we're, We're looking at in verses 6 to 9, the effects of Messiah's reign. And now in verse 10, the extent of Messiah's reign. Look at it. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the sons of, uh, to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. Uh, that you should go back in the early part of Isaiah and watch for the signal. Because in chapter 8, I think it is, The signal is there to call the armies to war against Jerusalem and to destroy Jerusalem. Now there's a new signal. That signal is no longer a banner showing the people where where the army must muster. Now the signal, the sign, the banner is is the root of Jesse himself. It's the person. And all the nations are going to flock to him just as all the nations... And we're, we're talking in, in relative comparison, not absolute comparison. As, a, as all the nations gathered with Assyria against Jerusalem. We'll see that again in chapters 36 and 37. Uh, now, it will not be merely the odd nations in the ancient Near East that happened to live around Assyria and joined in the battle, joined in the, in the, in the uh, conquest on the west western edge of the of Asia going over to the Mediterranean Sea not just those few nations it's all the nations what is the extent of this person's realm he will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious resting place um, it's a, again kind of an odd statement to use but rest in the Bible is a pretty important idea you can go back to Deuteronomy and work through Joshua in this. In fact, you can go back to Numbers and, and, and work your way through Numbers and Deuteronomy and into Joshua. It's already signaled in um, Genesis chapter 10. Do you remember why? Not 10. Um, Genesis chapter 5. Do you remember why Noah's father named him Noah? Noah? 
read the Bible, it sheds enormous light on the commentaries. Of course. And for the memory, you know. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. No? Perhaps this one will give us rest from our labors. And the word labors is the word that's used back in chapter 3 as a key word for the sufferings of mankind because of sin. But it occurs earlier than that in Genesis chapter 2. It's a different word, but it's the same concept. It's the same idea of rest. Why did the Lord rest in Genesis 2? He was tired. I mean, after all, he's created the world in a week. What was finished? The creation work was finished. When in a human life or in a human nation things are formless and void and darkness is upon the people. And God goes to work and brings out a condition where at the, at the end of his work, everything is very good. What would we call that work for a, for a people group? Yeah. Hmm? Done, yes. How, how about salvation? Right. The concepts of creation and salvation are paired in the Bible frequently. Um, in the past, we've looked at Psalms 135 and 136, both of which praise God for his work for Israel, but they start with creation. What has creation to do with God's work for Israel? We, we would say nothing, right? Creation's in the biology department. Yes? Or the, the, the science department. And history of Israel's over in the social, uh, social studies department. Amen? They have nothing to do with each other except that Genesis 1 to 11 is in Genesis <laughs> with 12 to 50. And what starts with creation climaxes with promises to Israel to rule over the nations. Are you with me here? So, so verse that you know very, very well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, new, no, new salvation. Creation's back in Genesis. No, see, creation is a work of salvation. Are you with me here? And as man was created to rule the earth, man must finally come to that, to that goal and, and achievement, namely to rule the earth, or else the plan of God has failed. Well, at, with the new heavens and new earth, finally. Okay. So here is, here is the beginning of it. So verse 10, how is this going to happen? To, to Abraham, God said, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now it's happening. Now, chapter 11, verse 10 is telling us about this. The nations um, uh, will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place. Why, why resting place? Because rest means that all the work of God in bringing salvation to this earth is complete. It's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. When God talks about rest in the Bible, it's talking about the completion of his plan, the completion of his saving work. We can now rest 
Adam and Eve's rest was to, was to work in the garden. We were created to work. But the difference is they were created for a completely fulfilling work. Because of sin, a lot of work is just simply drudgery. Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> None of you have had a, a job that was drudgery in your life. There's a, there's a dear brother at the seminary. He's a student. Uh, he's probably in his mid to late 40s. Uh, very distinguished looking man. But he mops the floor. And he takes out the trash. Um, I'm sure he's on, on scholarship. I know he's a student. I'm sure he's on scholarship and this kind of a work scholarship. Are you with me here? And I've, I've commented to him. I've, all of us at one time or another have done drudgery work, drudgery jobs. Um, I cleaned toilets at one time. Um, they gave me the job of making coffee in the motor pool at Fort Hood. I said, I've never made coffee. I don't drink it. I don't know how, how to make it. Oh, it's easy. I'll show you. He showed me. So I did what he showed me. Never had to make coffee again. <laughs> so I ended up cleaning toilets in the motor pool. <laughs> Wish I had have made coffee. <laughs> if you don't know how to make coffee, go learn to make coffee. <laughs> but I was, said you should make it by the pot. That's what, well, <laughs> back in the 70s, that would have been appropriate. <laughs> that was some of the, not in my company, but uh, the, uh, the I, I've said to Forrest, I really appreciate your work. It keeps the building so much more pleasant for all of us and safer. And I, I, I want him to know that he's paying a price, but it's worthwhile. Yes? It seems like drudgery in the midst of it but it's doing something useful. It's contributing to the whole thing that we're trying to do at the seminary. Am I making sense to you? Our work, we are intended to be people who will rule this earth. We cannot now. I point this out, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, God says to Noah and his sons, after they get out of the ark, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he stops there. He does not say, and subdue it. I think because of sin, we're not now able to rule the earth. But there is coming a time when the redeeming work of God will be complete and, the, and his resting place will be glorious. Are you with me here? So verse 11 then. Moving on. Verses 11 through 16. The establishment of Messiah's kingdom, fulfilling now the Davidic covenant. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. The second time he will recover the remnant of his people? What's the first time? Uh, uh, Egypt. Egypt. And that's what he's going to refer to here very soon. Now he says, from where? From Assyria and Egypt. Assyria, who has taken the northern kingdom captive, Egypt, who held the whole nation captive. Pathros? Pathros is way in the south of Egypt. It's not quite in Sudan yet. It's still the very southern part of, of uh, Egypt. So we're talking about the end of what the biblical knowledge of the world was like, virtually, with Pathros. So from Assyria, Egypt, so this is way in the southwest. 
uh, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush is south of there. Elam is way over east. Uh, uh, David, it's, you know, there's even still a part of, of, uh, of uh, Iran that's called um, Elam. Yeah, Elama. Uh, it's down on the, on the Persian Gulf. That's the eastern end of the world that Israel knew. So from one extreme to the other, God's going to gather his people from Cush, Elam, Shinar. Shinar is, of course, Babylon. Hamath is up north in Syria. Uh, it's still there, folks. It's a town called Hama. I looked at it on Google Map, uh, Google Earth yesterday just to see it. And right there, right at the curve of the Orontes River up north of Israel, uh, there's a, a mound. I, I, it wasn't labeled on the, on the map, but I'm pretty sure that's the old 120-acre fortress of, uh, of Hamath. Very important city. Um, and, uh, and from the islands of the sea, the island, the, you, you think of islands of the sea, well, what would Israel be talk, talking about here, Cyprus? Yeah, but this phrase, islands of the sea, is a phrase that's used for all the places that you have to travel by water to get to. Walk, going by land, it would take you so long, it would be, it, they're, they're unreachable, you can't get there from here. So, all, sometimes this is translated the coastlands. So all the coastlands. And I want you to remember something about ancient Mediterranean. Most, most of the population lived on the coast because you had good water supply there, not, not from the sea, but the springs going into the sea. But you had a, 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 measure, a measured climate, and it would be good, and lots of good ground to grow things on, although it was, it was mountainous. So when we're talking about the coastlands of the sea, we're talking about all the places Israel's never been, never even considered, never even thought of. And the peoples from all over the world are going to gather here. But especially in verse 11, it's going to be the return of Israel. Verse 12, he will lift up a standard. There it is again, a standard for the nations. He saves Israel first, then he saves the nations. Romans chapter 1. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Yes? Uh, he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Uh, just by the way, the kings of uh, Babylon and Assyria in their royal titularies called themselves the kings of the four quarters. What they were talking about is north, east, south, west. <laughs> we control the whole thing. Kings of the four quarters. Now you've got the king of the four quarters. He's going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. What's, what are we talking about Ephraim here? Do you, do you know? All right. Ephraim is the, is the younger brother uh, born to Joseph. Manasseh is the older brother, but God directed Jacob to bless Ephraim rather than Manasseh. Ephraim is the lead tribe of the northern kingdom, just as Judah is the lead tribe of the southern kingdom. So you have Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin in the south, and you have the rest of the tribes in the north. 
So Judah and Ephraim are the two people groups that are most at odds. And if you go read Genesis chapter uh, 49, and indeed Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, 33, rather, um, it's Ephraim who is blessed along with Judah. And, uh, and leadership is, is given to Ephraim. So there's this, there's this clash between these two tribes. God's going to heal all that. His resting place will be glorious. Are you with me? Um, verse 14. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sun. By, by the way, the Philistines live in what is to, lived in what is today the uh, Gaza Strip. So if you hear about the Gaza Strip, think Philistine territory, and you'll have it. Um, together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab. Edom and Moab were distantly related people groups to Israel, and always they were at, they were at enmity. Judah, I'm sorry, Israel is trying to get up to, to uh, Canaan to go in across the Jordan River to get into Canaan. They had to go through, or they needed to go through Edom. The Edomites, the sons of Esau, wouldn't let them go. They got to Moab. They wanted to go through Moab. Moab are the descendants of Lot. And they won't let them go. They have to go around. So now God is going to bring justice to these people who won't practice family loyalty. Um, verse uh, 14 continues, And the sons of Ammon, the other son of, of Lot, through his daughters, will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. What, what, now what are we talking about? That's about as clear as mud, I suspect. What does it mean to destroy the tongue of the, of the Sea of Egypt? Does it say sea? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Say again? Something. I'm not sure what body of water he has in mind. The word sea in Hebrew can actually apply to the Nile. So it may be that he's talking about the Nile here. Folks, get on Google Earth sometime and look at Egypt. There's an old saying. It's about as old as history. Egyptian history goes back to about 3300 BC, right? 5,000 years back. It's about as old as history to say Egypt is the Nile. Look at it on, look at it on Google Earth. All you see is, is brown on both sides and a strip of green that follows the river all the way north until you get to the delta and it fans out. Possibly. It's hard to know. Uh, I, when he says Sea of Egypt and, and, uh, and so forth, I don't know exactly what he has in mind here. Well, yeah, it's the tongue here. Uh, it's not so much the whole river as it is the tongue of the river. Yeah, it could be, but uh, it's hard to know exactly what's in view. My study was saying it's a western fork of the Red Sea. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the t- yeah, I know. <laughs> because 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 the word yam, which is translated sea, when we teach beginning Hebrew, we teach people to translate yam, y a m, yam, sea. Because it can be used for rivers too, it, it's now difficult to know exactly what the tongue of the sea of, of the Sea of Egypt would be. 
but he's going to dry it up. Why? Because what God has done in the past is a model and promise of what he will do in the future. Though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. As, and we're going to see this again in Isaiah, at least two more times, I think three more times. Uh, uh, as God delivered Israel in the past by breaking down the natural physics of water and bringing about the deliverance of his people, he's going to do it in the future. That is a pattern that God has set in history. And that pattern is not simple history from our point of view. History is unrepeatable, we say. Amen? That's why it's not a science. It's not repeatable. I can't go test scientific theories in history because, uh, that is, scientific theories about history because I can't repeat the events. And every time you say, well, we need to learn this from history, they say, well, yeah, but that was different. Yes? So, So one guy said the only thing we ever learn from history is that we never learn anything from history. But not in the Bible. You see, God as an artist is building into history events, patterns, events, persons, institutions that model his later saving work. So when that work begins, we can understand that it's God's work, knowing the pattern, understand where it's going, and trust God in relation to those things. And then he tells us, look, I'm going to repeat this pattern again and again and again. So uh, I've said to you before, I will say to my classes at school, why should an Israelite on the coast of the Red Sea trust God about getting across the Red Sea? Does he have anything in his background that would help him to trust God? And you will say, well, yeah, he's got the, he has the, the uh, plagues in Egypt. Amen? Yes? Got the stories of Abraham? Yeah, but there's one real important story that bears directly on the problem at the Red Sea. Creation. It was nothing but water. God parted the water and caused dry land to appear. Yes? So if God can do it in the past, He can do it in the future. And He tells us He did do it in the future, namely with the, the Red Sea. But He did it again at the Jordan. And He did it again for Elisha and Elijah. Yes? Now I'm getting out kind of in foggy territory, right? Go, go read the Bible. It sheds enormous light on the commentators. Uh, uh, and, and Isaiah tells us here, and he's going to tell us again in 41, 42, 43, that he's going to do it again. He's going to cause streams in the desert so that his people will have water as they come back to the land of Egypt, to the land of Israel. But he's going to cause the, 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 the water, body of water that would prohibit them from traveling to dry up so that they can travel, make a highway in the desert. Are you with me here? What God has done in the past, brothers and sisters, really is a model and promise of what he will do in the future. The thing is, comparing the, the events that we've talked about, he did it different ways each time. Had the same effect but he did it different ways. God's so creative <laughs> that, uh, that he never allows us to think, oh, I know what God's going to do. No, you know, Because <laughs> he loves surprising people. And he does. And he does it over and over and over again. 
But he starts with the weak. Yes, sir. Is it wrong to make the stretch here? I, I, I'm okay. I'm looking at it from the stage. That part of the Red Sea, the river that comes into the Red Sea, Euphrates. So he drives up the Red Sea. He's driving up the river Euphrates. Oh no, the Red, Euphrates doesn't come into the Red Sea. Well, it okay. It goes into the per, uh, Persian Gulf. All right. Yeah. But there is going to be a dried up river, so that the, in, yeah. the, in the, the Orient, yep. the armies are coming yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. Revelation says that. So, isn't there a tie to these two? Things? Oh, yeah, that's my point. God's repeating the patterns so that his people will know how to trust him. Are you with me here? And there are lots and lots of these patterns. You need to get started thinking in patterns as you read the biblical stories. I, I find them most, I don't find them by studying, I find them by talking. <laughs> when I'm in a passage of scripture and I start, oh, this is what I'm describing here in class is a pattern, and I'm never able to write these things down. I need to hire a secretary to go to class with me. Write that down, please. I've got to to have that, or I'll forget it. I always do. I always forget. Uh, So somebody hire me a secretary. But uh, going on, um, verse 15, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river. With his scorching, and, and the river here, what is this river? My text has it capitalized, I'm not sure why. Perhaps we're talking about the Nile at this point. He will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind, and he will, he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. There will be a highway from Assyria um, for the remnant of his people who, who will be left, just as there was for Israel, in the day they came up out of the land of Egypt. So a highway from Assyria. But as we shall see, we, we're not going to see it because we're not going to go far enough to do this. But there are, there are prophets who are much later than, than uh, Isaiah who talk about Assyria when Assyria is long gone from history. And Assyria becomes the symbol for all uh, hostility against God. There are two others in the Old Testament. What, what's one you can think of immediately? A symbol for Babylon is one. And Tyre is the other. Assyria, Babylon, and Tyre are big images of hostility to God in the world. We'll take up Tyre at the end of 13 to 23. Uh, but the, the point I'm making, folks, is what God has done in the past. How did God get Israel out of Egypt? He dried up a body of water and allowed Israel to walk out on dry land and destroyed his, their enemies in the process. Amen? Yes? How's he going to get Israel back into the land? El Al. Thank you. Airline. Somebody got it. Just a few of you. El Al. No, they're not going to come back on El Al. This is going to be too miraculous for El Al. So what's he going to do? He's going to follow the pattern. He started the pattern. He's going to complete it. But it's not going to be what we think. It's going to be something better. And so great is that this passage, chapters 1 to 11, ends with chapter 12, 1 to 6. And in that passage, you have two psalms of praise celebrating God's work. First psalm of praise. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. That's that's nice. They're they're, they're grateful people. Amen. Well, that's one of the 
Good virtue is a civilized person ought to have. Be grateful. Amen. No, this is different. This is a bigger idea. When, when this word occurs in Hebrew, we're talking about gathering people together, making sacrifice, and from the sacrifice, putting on a big feast, and all of us celebrating around a huge feast, the work of God. And in the midst of the feast, the people on whose behalf the sacrifice is made get up and give a testimony of what God has done. And that's what that word means. All of that's involved in that word. I will give thanks to you. There, there's a set of songs that are about, I forget what it is, about, about 15 psalms in the book of Psalms that are this kind of psalm that, that give thanks. Always they look back to, when you're reading a psalm and you read, I cried out in the midst of my distress. He heard and he answered me. When you see that, you're in a thanksgiving psalm. And the psalmist is giving the testimony that, that would be given at the feast that comes from what's called a peace offering. Uh, Leviticus chapter 3. Uh, it's the only sacrifice the layman gets to eat anything of. So the, the whole point of, of I will give thanks to you, O Lord, is not merely, well, thank you, Lord. Oh, it's nice of you. Real, real gentlemanly of you there, saving me. It was, no. This is going to be a sacrifice with a with a with a celebration. Turn just a moment to First Kings chapter eight, to the end of the chapter. It's a long, long chapter. First Kings chapter eight. This is the celebration for the uh, founding of the temple in uh, when it was completed in, in King Solomon's reign. <clears throat> They're throwing a feast of thanksgiving to the Lord. Now look at what this feast looks like. Verse 25. In the twelfth year, I'm in 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. Um, I knew 25 was too short. Uh, Verse 62. Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, and that was what we've just been talking about. He offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And a sacrifice of thanksgiving has to be eaten overnight. But it's the king and all Israel with him. You get it? Um... Um, so, uh, so the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. There, Solomon has gotten up and given a testimony. The first part of chapter eight. So we'll we'll leave it at that. So I will give thanks. Back to Isaiah twelve now. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Is Psalm 12, 2 written after the deliverance? Or after the judgment? Or before the judgment? It's before the judgment. So why does Isaiah put chapter 12 where he does in the book? Because he's teaching godly people how to respond to the coming judgment. Are you with me? Are, aren't, aren't, are godly people going to escape death? 
Are they going to escape famine? Remnant. Hmm? Not the remnant. Well, by, by escape that I mean, are they going to be hungry and famished and, and longing for food? Yes. So they're not going to escape in that sense. Are they going to escape the destruction of their national life? Are they going to escape being taken captive? No. So how do I respond in such times? You know a God who brings judgment, but after the judgment brings deliverance. You know a God who in the midst of judgment, this is Habakkuk chapter 3, you know a God who in the midst of judgment brings people out and gives them hope. So I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Does that sound familiar? It only occurs two other times in Scripture. But two of them very, very important. Hmm? Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. Song of Moses and crossing the sea. And Psalm 118, where the king has been out to battle, nearly defeated, and, brought in, and is brought out into salvation. Are you with me here? So, before judgment comes, before the hardships arise, what are godly people called to do? Don't be afraid. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. How can I do that? Because I know the story of the Exodus. I heard Israel in Scripture. I heard Israel complaining about leaving Egypt. Wouldn't it be better to stay here and not die in the wilderness? I heard that. I, I heard Psalm 118. I heard the king. I was, they, they, they surrounded me like bees. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The Lord was for me. Are you with me here? So if, if I am right with God, God is for me, and when judgment is coming, I can trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, and there's that word again, give thanks to the Lord. Even when judgment is coming, celebrate the saving work of God. I know, I know that after the judgment comes salvation. I know after the judgment comes hope. And in the midst of judgment, God's people have a refuge where there is, I don't want to say safety, but a place of rest. Going back to what we said in the early part of our study this morning, that rest means the fulfillment of the promises of God, the fulfillment of the plan of God, you are involved in the plan of God. Even when judgment is coming upon the world, upon our nation, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Here Fred is call on his name. There are three translations, invoke his name, that is pronounce his name, and that's another possible. Uh, but explain his name is, a, is still a third um, make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. You exalt his name when you trust him when there's no obvious reason to do it. 
the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> and we need to lay hold of the providence Absolutely. of God as well. Yes. And, which is Absolutely. That's that's okay. this. That's what we're to yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So so God is sovereign in his providence too. So so we hold on to what we have learned about God. Uh, one of our profs, Howard Hendricks, used to say, "Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light." Is mm-hmm. <clears throat> if it was true in the light, it's still true in the darkness. When you're walking through the house and all the lights in the neighborhood are out and it's a cloudy night, you still know where all the furniture is. And if you don't, your knee finds it. (laughs) That's why your leg was created, to find furniture in the dark. (laughs) But but you know where everything is. Why? Because you learned it in the light. Why forget it in the darkness? Why give it up in the darkness? If I've got a God who can take Israel out of 400 years of slavery, then why do I need to fear when judgment comes on the wicked? I fear pain. I fear, I I told you how many times, I can stand anything but pain and temptation. (laughs) I I don't look forward to any of that, but brothers and sisters, I've got a God who is still my strength and my song, and he will become my salvation. Are you with me here? That's what we have to grab hold of. That's right. What our fear is in relation to Mm -hmm. who God is, and give it to him. Absolutely. So, (laughs) verse 5, So, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I, I just, last word here, Holy One of Israel. He is one, the best I can do with this, and I found a, a writer who said that this week, said the same thing. Best I can do with that is say, Israel is the only family on earth that God has given himself to in a relationship. It is an exclusive relationship between him and that family. No other family has that kind of relationship. Then Israel is is expected to give the same kind of unique response to him. But folks, God has done that with us. He is the Holy One of the church too. And as the Holy One of the church, he has brought us into a unique relationship Israel never had as Israel. Are you with me? And if that's the case, then we are called to the same kind of confidence that God longed for from Israel in all those centuries of their history. So, folks, hard times may be ahead. Easy times might be ahead. You know God might bring a revival on our land that would clean it out and do some marvelous things for us. Some of them we'd like and some of them we wouldn't. Because it's all their sins that we don't like. Our sins we want to keep. Amen? God might do something marvelous about like that, but the United States, as far as I can tell, has no role in, in prophecy. So it may be that we'll become a cipher in world history, just a note, paragraph or two in world history in, a, in years to come. Doesn't matter. What matters... So I have the God of history, who's created history, who's, 
who's been weaving history all these centuries and it has patterns in it and I can learn to trust him because I know the patterns. Let's close with prayer. Father, you are a great and awesome God and greater than we even can conceive, but you are great and awesome. And that that we have seen just a little bit of in your word today. Honor your word in our lives. Give us the spirit of thanksgiving. Not just that we are grateful, but that we come away bragging about what you have done. Uh, we Give us a heart to brag about your excellence in this world. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.